right. Um, thanks for being here. Uh, hopefully this doesn't go out, but it's just that, you know, I'm American, so it's probably loud enough without it anyway. Uh, so we'll, we'll just see. So I realized much later after they asked me for the title of this talk, it probably would have been better to just name it, is it, is it wise to marry, right? But beneficial, will, beneficial works too. So the title, as you may be familiar, is taken from Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus is talking about regulations and stipulations on divorce. So I want to just read that passage briefly for you now here at the beginning, just so we can sort of set this question in context. So it's from Matthew 19, 1 through 12. And I'll read it since we're Catholics and nobody brought their Bible. Um, so I grew up a Presbyterian, so it's, it's always kind of a kind of a funny, funny difference. All right, so Matthew 19. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he, he healed them there. Now, Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, for your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it not expedient to marry? But he said to them, not all men can receive this precept, but only those to whom it is given. So is it beneficial, is it expedient, prudent, or wise to marry? Is it really to one's advantage? The implication seems to be that marriage is meant to be advantageous in some way. But if we're talking about a real state of permanence above and beyond what the disciples had known, then perhaps it's not advantageous. It seems to be the implication. Now, typically in this passage, we ended with our Lord's warning. He says, not all men can receive this precept. We typically associate that with what he says next about celibacy. He says, well, those are, there are those who are made eunuchs by men, those who have been so from birth, and those who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to receive this, let him receive it. We typically associate our Lord's warning with that next precept. But in the flow of the narrative, the warning seems to apply to both states, actually. Right? There's a kind of wisdom that he's talking about with this decision whether or not it's prudent or beneficial to marry. So marriage seems to be serious business, perhaps more difficult than we typically assume. Now, I don't want to depress you, but for in, pre in preparation for this talk, I looked up a bunch of statistics for the UK on a bunch of different categories for marriage, divorce, etc. So I want to read a few of those off because I think that it, it's actually helpful in asking this question because I'm assuming sort of just a self-selecting population in this room, if you ask this question, is it beneficial to marry, most people would say yes, but the statistics for the wider culture might make you 
might make the average person question that. So a few numbers just to give us some context. Between 1851 and 1972, so a period of over 100 years, the average age for marriage among residents of the UK was men was 28 and women 25. Since 1972, that has risen steadily every year, and currently, the average age for marriage among men is 40 and women 37. In 2019, there were 250,000 weddings, the fewest number since 1893, um, when the population has almost doubled since then. Uh, and in England and Wales, religious wedding ceremonies make up less than 20% of the total. As far as children are concerned, there were, in 1971, you had 85, 000, 85 children per 1,000 women born. Today, that number stands at 53. And there, in total, in, 20, in uh, 2021, just, just two years ago, there were a total of 695,000 live births, compared to over a million a year in the 19th century. In 2021 alone, there were over 200,000 abortions. We've averaged, the UK has averaged about 180,000 per year for the last 25 years. And the use of contraception by women who are either married or cohabiting is the highest in all of Europe, at 81.3%. When asked if they thought marriage was an important institution, less than half in the UK said yes. And Gen Z respondents were the least positive, with less than a third saying that they thought marriage was important. The one bright note might be that the average number of divorces has fallen over the last 25 to 30 years. It peaked in the 90s at about 200,000 a year, and that number stands at about just over 100,000 now. So it's a relatively bleak picture, and you wouldn't blame anyone for actually asking this question if you stop them on the street. Is it wise to marry? So first we have to ask the question of what wisdom actually is. Seems an appropriate question for this weekend. According to St. Thomas, for one definition, Thomas says that it belongs to wisdom to consider the highest cause. And by means of that, we are able to form a certain judgment about other causes, especially regarding those things that should be set in order. So there's three things in particular for wisdom. The first is the consideration of the highest causes. In other words, the final goal of all things. What, what's something for? Second, the ability, the power to make sure judgments about a thing. Is it so? Yes or no? And finally, the power to set things in order. Now, wisdom seems to be opposed to both folly and what one might call worldly wisdom. I'm going to try and keep track of the time here. Okay. So folly would be the condition in which one's senses are dull. We talk about a lack of knowledge or a lack of discernment even. Now, worldly wisdom, on the other hand, there's plenty of things that might be wise when we're considering the highest worldly causes. Right? But that's simply about things that are set in order according to a mortal or earthly or materialistic set of principles, perhaps. And this is not to mention um, cunning even, right, where we might call cunning a kind of wisdom, but it would be a particularly malicious or nefarious use of one's intelligence to gain an advantage, often in some unsavory or 
unfitting way. So if we return to this passage in, in Matthew 19, Christ is speaking about the origins of marriage. So what do we want to say about marriage as it springs from the divine wisdom? Now, the first thing we could say is that marriage is both sacramental and natural. It's what makes it one of the trickier realities of the faith to actually discuss in all its complexities, because there's a lot about marriage that is natural, and there's a lot about marriage that is supernatural, that's from the faith. Not to mention the fact that what we typically think is natural, we typically tend to think about our fallen state as what's natural, as opposed to what's actually um, the case. So we'll get to the sacramental nature of marriage in a few moments. But the first thing I want to say about marriage as natural is that marriage is what we would call a theonomic reality. So what does that mean? We tend to think about the world in black and white and polarities. Right? So we tend to divide things up into different categories, often with opposing sides. Right? Sometimes we pit nature and grace against one another. Uh, so we have right, God and the faith are over here, right? and that with grace. So that must mean that nature is over here, right? all on its own, right? apart from God, apart from grace. But that's a bit of a trick of the mind. Right? That's a bit of a trick of our post-enlightenment way that we divide up the world, where we think about God up there in a kind of deistic kind of way. He sets the world running. And every once in a while, right, there might be a miracle or something else where he kind of breaks into our own spaces, into nature, and then recedes for the most part. But that's not, in fact, the case. So nature itself is theonomic. It's ruled by God even in itself. It finds Nature finds its source in Nature is sustained by and ruled over and directed by God. It's designed by God in a particular way, which is why we talk about grace not destroying or being contrary to nature, but that it perfects it and elevates it. They are harmonious in that sense. So even natural marriages outside the church, apart from divine grace, even natural marriages participate in this divinely ordered nature of the reality of marriage. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, which is a pretty popular passage for weddings, who knows, upstairs, maybe that's the case, uh, both St. Paul and our Lord point back to the same thing when discussing the mystery of marriage. So Paul talks about how this one flesh union is symbolic of the one flesh union between Christ and the church. And Christ points out something very similar. He speaks about how from the beginning, this is the arrangement that has been ordained. Right? Marriage is not something Christ brings brand new. Right? Of course, he renews it and he refashions it according to his own power and will. But it's something that is present from the beginning. That's part of his logic in answering the Pharisees. So it's something that has been arranged and ordained and set in motion from the beginning. So we could ask this question again. Is it wise to marry? Now, the first thing we could say is that if the God who is true wisdom himself, who's beyond wisdom, right, above wisdom in some sense, has ordained marriage in such a way, then by necessity it has to be a wise arrangement. Right? There are certain things we can say about the world, if we, if we want to say X, Y, and Z about God, he is good, he is wise, then what he does has to be good and wise. And of course, 
we're asking this question because we're trying to figure out how, how is that actually the case. But second, what about the practicalities of marriage? What is it that actually makes marriage a wise and beneficial choice for me? Just because something might be wise or good in itself, or maybe it's not a good choice for me. So we get asked to ask this question, what is marriage? Now in the um, Gaudium et Spes, the Second Vatican Council, talks about marriage briefly, and in that document it gives not a pithy definition, but a short enough one for me to read. So in Gaudium et Spes it states this about what nature, uh, what marriage is. It says, by their very nature, the institution of matrimony itself and conjugal love are ordained for the procreation and education of children and find in them their ultimate crown. And so a man and woman who by their compact of conjugal love are no longer two but one flesh, citing this passage from Matthew 19, render mutual help and service to each other through an intimate union of their persons and actions. Through this union, they experience the meaning of their oneness and attain to it with growing perfection day by day. As a mutual gift of two persons, this intimate union and the good of the children impose total fidelity on the spouses and argue for an unbreakable oneness between them. So that's, there's a lot we could say about that. Uh, the definition that Thomas Aquinas gives us is much pithier. He simply states that marriage is the greatest of friendships. There's a lot we could say about that as well, but for the sake of time, we'll essentially move on. So based on what uh, the Second Vatican Council says and what St. Thomas said close to 800 years ago, we could say a couple of things. We could say that marriage is a certain kind of friendship with both naturally and supernaturally defined goals. First would be the procreation and education of children. That second part is really important. Uh, second, marriage is for the mutual sanctification of the household ordered to the mystical body in heaven and the life of glory. So it has a supernatural end as well. And finally, third, which is maybe just a more kind of statement of fact, hopefully, it seems to be the ordinary means by which the average person will attain heaven. So just statistically, if most people end up married, one would hope right, that most people attain heaven by that particular vocation. So we've defined what marriage is, at least in brief. So what I want to propose here as an answer to partial, partial answer to this question about the wisdom or the benefit of marriage, I want to propose that marriage be seen and viewed as a school of virtue. Now going back to Gaudium et Spes, um, there's a very famous passage that I'm sure many of you have heard before, where it says that man who is the only creature on earth God willed for itself, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of himself. Now, I won't read through it, but of course this is, there's part, this is partially in reference to the famous chapter in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Paul speaks about mutual submission in Ephesians, kind of a contentious phrase in the last few decades in the debates between uh, what you know what submission actually looks like 
in scripture and in uh, the life of the Christians. Mission can be a bit of a, a dirty word sometimes for some people. But when Paul speaks about mutual submission in Ephesians, this is what he's actually talking about, what Gaudium et Spes is getting at here, right? This see this gift of one's self. Leave aside other issues of, of submission and headship for now. So the mutual submission that Paul is talking about is the submission of one's whole self in this gift of self to the other. So think back to all those bleak statistics I stated you know, 10, 15 minutes ago. Why are there so many divorces, so few marriages, so few children, so much contraception, so many abortions? An answer that I think would get at least us, get us partially there is that it's a failure and a fear to really offer oneself as a gift to another person. There's a genuine fear to give one's self away. But in the Catholic Church's teaching on what marriage really genuinely is, that it is something that is indissoluble, there's genuine security in that fact. Right? That tends to be something a lot of people are afraid of or balk at, which is what the apostles balk at here, where Christ says, restricts this you know, access to divorce, is we'll, we'll know. He says, no. And the apostles say, well, if I can't divorce my wife, is it really a good thing? Why should I get married, right? That seems to be taking a risk, right? But there's genuine security in this indissolubility. Now, the friendship of marriage is beneficial in many obvious ways. How are we doing on time? Okay, great. So the friendship of marriage is beneficial in many obvious ways. We can talk about mutual help, companionship, Pleasure, great. But it's beneficial in all the ways that we actually need marriage to be beneficial as well. It genuinely demands growth in virtue and self-sacrifice. So there's an aspect of obligation that moves marriage into a very specific sphere of responsibilities on account of it being this freely willed state of life characterized by the taking of vows. Now, canon law defines a vow as this. Canon law states a deliberate and free promise made to God about a possible and better good that must be fulfilled by reason of the virtue of religion. So that's what a vow is. So this, you know, it's, it, I think it would be hard to argue that marriage doesn't fit that bill. Marriage is something deliberate. Marriage is free. It's offered to God in, in the presence of God and by the means of his power. And it certainly concerns a better good since the state of marriage imposes obligations on the individual in a way that it does not for the person who is unmarried or who is living a chaste celibate life in an unvowed state of single life. Right? There's a reason in all the you know, old J Jane Austen novels, for instance, contain the old stereotype of the confirmed bachelor who seems to be flighty and can't settle down and you know, it's just waiting for something better to occur. There's a kind of obligation that marriage imposes on you that demands you live a particular better good. So thanks to the universal call to holiness, right? Thanks, thanks to everything that we've talked about so far, the council's call to universal, universal holiness, which is of course not something brand new, but something emphasized again, is actually able to be pursued and lived in a very specific manner in marriage. Now, we usually talk about the evangelical councils of poverty 
chastity and obedience in regard to the religious life, right? So, and with good reason, well, with good reason we talk, right? That's, that's something very specific, right? Our good professor brothers could, could tell us more about that. And yet, marriage too would seem to be a privileged place to live out these more perfect pursuits in a way fitting for the married state in particular. Now, of course, they're not going to look like they do in religious life. And that's fitting on account of uh, the, you know, the radicality of the religious life, the fact that it's purely, it's a supernatural vocation in the way that marriage is not quite. So how would, I, I mentioned marriage as a school of virtue, right? So how would the married, straight, married state actually train us in the wisdom of the faith in this manner? So I'll... I'll mention these, these three and bring us to a conclusion, I think, to make sure. Okay, good. All right, so first, poverty. Right? Now, practically, many of us are likely not wealthy. Right? Now, maybe we wouldn't, we wouldn't define ourselves as living in poverty and squalor, but we're probably, like most of us, are not wealthy. But poverty and marriage would not be about having nothing, but would be more about holding nothing back. So there's a certain obligation, it would seem, for a married couple, especially a father, to make sure his family, to the best of his ability, was not living in complete poverty. Right? There's a kind of obligation laid on you to care for a spouse, a wife, and children. And yet, if we think about a particular kind of poverty, we can think about giving everything away. As symbols of the union of Christ and the church, husband and wife are meant to imitate the poverty of Christ who emptying his own self, taking on the form of a slave, Paul tells us in Philippians. So what does it mean to pour oneself out as a husband for his wife or a mother for her children? First question you would want to ask. And in addition, to embrace this spirit of poverty, as Christ tells us in the Beatitudes, right, blessed are the poor in spirit, this would mean embracing our dependence on others. We depend on our spouse, right? Our children depend upon us. The family in many ways, hopefully, is able to depend on its own members and grandparents and siblings and aunts and uncles and cousins and all kinds of other relations. The family would then become a web of interdependence in which charity can genuinely be at work. All right, second, chastity. This one's more obvious, right? One of the goods of marriage, as the church has always taught, is fidelity. So marriage is a venue in which one can learn the virtue of complete devotion to the beloved. Now, something like monogamy was not very widespread in the ancient world. It takes the revelation of the true God to make this clear, both in Israel and the church. Uh, it's one of those things that's gen generally agreed upon to be part of the natural law, though one that can be difficult to see at times based on our sin and our ignorance. Right? So there's a twofold blindness to our fallenness. The church and her saints will often talk about sin and ignorance. So seeing the precepts of the natural law clearly can be very difficult outside the grace of the church and was even more difficult before the advent of Christ. So it's something the New Testament genuinely brings to us. There's not really anything explicitly said about it in the Old Testament, though it, def it definitely seems like the Old Testament authors are very interested in showing you exactly how 
non-monogamous relationships go. It's, I think I, I would defy you to find an example in the Old Testament where polygamy goes really well. Usually it's the opposite, right? We never talk about Isaac and Rebecca, right? They're just you know, quiet, quick and everything else. Who do we focus on? Abraham, right? Everyone, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you can see how it goes, right, with, uh, with everyone. But the church in her wisdom lays down both the law that she finds in scripture and in nature. And so her magisterium right, is very interested in concerning herself with the definition and nature of what marriage is in itself, not just how it might look to a fallen world. And finally, obedience. So how is this final one lived out? Now, obedience will look different in every family. That's just sort of a, goes without saying. Now, there's a basic structure on account of the order of the family, how the family is designed. But this goes back to that concept of mutual submission we discussed earlier. And when we think about feminine submission, for instance, right, the obedience of a wife to her husband, for instance, it's not thanks to marriage being a dictatorship or a tyrant's rule. Now, unfortunately, that does happen. Right? It's why we've seen such a rejection of, you know, reject the patriarchy and everything else, because men have failed. Fathers have really failed in a lot of ways. But this kind of obedience and pouring out of one's self is in the first place necessarily simply the desire to be at one with the will of the one whom you love. Christ in his humanity is obedient to the Father. Why? Because he submits his human will to the divine will. Love causes him to obey the Father, to be at one with the will of the one who sent him. So in marriage, the greatest of friendships, the relation in which two are to become one, where the other is to be a kind of other self, what would be more fitting than the union of two wills in a single desire, one goal, one way of life? And further, there's many, many things we could say about how the family, for the most part, does seem to need to follow a certain rule or way of life. Now, I don't suggest attempting to implement the rule of St. Benedict at home or anything like that, but the fact is that life lived in community with others will always mean living under someone else's rule, even if it simply means bending to the needs of your children and what they demand, right? What your children need, in many instances, will demand the kind of rule that occurs in your home. When do you wake up? When do you leave the house? When do you go to bed, etc. So as in the convent, where the brothers or sisters live at their obedience to God under the direct supervision and rule of a superior. Husbands and wives live out their obedience to God under the supervision of one another. The father is called to be the spiritual head of the family, laying his life down for his bride as Christ did for the church. The wife similarly is called to be joined to her spouse in the offering of her own self, giving consent to that sacrifice as Our Lady does at Calvary, standing in persona of the church. And I'm sure there's plenty that the women in this room could tell us about, you know, laying their own selves down. So in conclusion, I know we're up against the clock. So the society of the family is the venue in which the vast majority of the human race is meant to live out their human vocation, to live a life in service to others. Thanks to the incarnation and the mystery of Christ's redemption, we know that marriage is meant to be a sign of contradiction in a world that sees very little value in it at the moment. A story paradox when you think about it, seeing as marriage is so natural and yet so 
difficult. And at the same time, not all are called to marriage. Many will be called to the priesthood or to a religious life, but I think it's safe to say that for the most part, those vocations will be allowed to blossom within the embrace of a loving family. Holier marriages will mean holier children, and holier children will make a better world. So I'll close in the words of Pius XI. I'll let him have the last word. Let then those who are about to enter on married life approach that state well disposed and well prepared, that they will be able as far as they can to help each other in sustaining the vicissitudes of life, and yet more in attending to their eternal salvation and informing the inner man unto the fullness of the age of Christ. It will also help them, he says, if they behave toward their cherished offspring as God wills, that is, that the father be truly a father and the mother truly a mother through their devout love, unwearying care. And the home, though it suffer the want and hardship of this valley of tears, may become for the children in its own way a foretaste of that paradise of delight in which the Creator placed the first men of the human race. Thank you.